This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. It's four months since a giant German company, Bauer Media, stunned the staff and subscribers of New Zealand's best magazines by suddenly pulling the plug on them. But now two German journalists here in New Zealand are bringing one of them back. I think it's a bit of an unfortunate coincidence that the people who close north and south down were Germans just like us. So I do hope that we're not being seen as just another bunch of Germans taking over. I hope we're being seen as who we are, not a big company, just the two of us and people who've been journalists all all their lives who care about journalism. Also, we hear about a survey of hundreds of articles published in the wake of the Christchurch Mosque massacre. What did they tell us about how the media handled such a sensitive story? But first, political reporters were excited this week by the startling results of the latest TV news opinion polls. There were lots of dramatic stories that came out of them, but was it news we can use? Judith Collins has failed to steady the ship and the National Party is sinking towards its lowest, darkest depths. Buckle in for our latest News Hub Read Research poll because these numbers are going to shift the election into hyperdrive. That was News Hub's Melissa Chan Green and Tom McRae hyping up News Hub's latest poll for all it was worth last Sunday at 6pm. And while hyperdrive is like something out of science fiction, News Hub insisted their numbers were solid political science. News Hub at six viewers were repeatedly reminded that Reed Research's polls for them in the run-up to the last election ended up being closer to the results than other polls for the major parties. Results kept on coming in from News Hub's poll last weekend and the days after as well, with responses to questions about trust in party leaders and verdicts on their ability to manage the post-COVID economy. But last Sunday, News Hub political editor Tova O'Brien boasted that their polls didn't just mirror what we the people think, they also prompt our politicians to act. Our last poll was the death knell for Simon Bridges' leadership, the reason he was rolled. But if that poll was bad for National, you ain't seen nothing yet. This is a catastrophe. Well, in fact, News Hub had sounded the death knell for Simon Bridges' leadership many times after previous polls, which weren't as poor as this week's one. But the dead man kept on walking anyway. Now, of course, there's a new team at the top of the opposition now, and News Hub at Six went on to report that the new leader, Judith Collins, had already dismissed its latest poll as a rogue one. After which, Melissa Chan Green put to Tova O'Brien what she'd probably call a patsy question if she heard it in Parliament. Tova, what do you make of Judith Collins dismissing this poll as rogue? It reeks of desperation, frankly. The News Hub Read Research poll was the most accurate at the last election, the closest to the actual election result. This is Judith Collins attempting to undermine the facts simply because she doesn't like them. But it wasn't only those on the wrong end of the News Hub numbers this week who spoke out to say they reckoned the numbers couldn't be real. Quite a lot of bad news in last night's TV3 poll. Sadly, a lot of it is bad news for TV3, who I think will have to explain how Labour aren't, won't, never were, never will be getting the 60% support that they currently claim they have. Mike Hosking on News Talk ZB there, and he wasn't the only one saying that this poll was an outlier compared to previous polls by the same company, and he said it was also out of kilter with a survey published in the Sunday Star Times the day before. Under the headline, Game On... And Judith Collins is fizzing, giving the staff Massey poll has National on 40. TV3 has them on 25. TV1 has them on 38. So is it 25 or 40 or 38? So here's the deal with polls. Don't take them seriously. Mike Hosking went on to reinforce that point about the outcome from polling booths in September being the only poll worth worrying about. And it's a surprising change since the last election. When he hosted the TVNZ leaders' debates in 2017, he spent five minutes of the first one talking about pre-election poll results. 
Do we you want to believe the them. numbers, given the dramatic turnaround? Look, the polls are all over the place. I believe it's a neck-and-neck neck race between the two major parties. OK, so do you believe 46 or not? Because there's a couple of polls that line you up 46, 47 now. Well, look, I think it's neck-and-neck neck between the and parties. And that's government, isn't it? 46, 47 is good enough for government. Two weeks later, it was the same in his second debate, and when the election was all over, he praised the pollsters for getting it right. One of the winners in the night, of course, were the pollsters taking uh, taken in totality. Basically, they were spot on. This week, when Mike Hosking was contrasting that stuff survey in collaboration with Massey University, whose results were based on a substantial but self-selected sample, he raised the hackles of senior political reporter at Stuff, Henry Cook. Mike Hosking is actively misrepresenting our survey with Massey as a poll. The article he references explicitly says it is not a scientific poll, so you cannot use the party vote numbers in any kind of comparison. And soon after that, ZB's Heather Duplessy-Allen made the same comparison to dent the credibility of NewsHub's poll. Sunday Star Times ran some results from the Stuff Massey University election survey, which showed that voters are actually responding positively to Judith Collins taking over as leader. So that would suggest actually a bit of a bump in the poll should be what we're seeing, not a drop. But while she thought that startling News Hub poll was wrong, she reckoned it could still have a significant effect. Uh, because polls like these can become self-fulfilling prophecies. Voters who are only half listening might see a poll like this, they might take it as gospel and they might throw in the towel with National and Judith Collins. And also coming in on that point was ZB's Andrew Dickens who reckoned polls should be scrapped. Why have a poll? People will hear, oh, look at that, apparently, Jacinda Ardern's on 60%. I don't need to vote for Labour, I just might stay at home. Or what about um, a national supporter? Oh, my God, they're on 25%. Useless. Uh, I just won't vote. That's, uh, how can I help? It puts people off voting. Now, that would be an unpopular opinion if his employers at NZME and The Herald were still running digipolls like they used to, but they aren't. However, the ZB hosts weren't alone in saying that the dramatic poll results could become self-fulfilling. Pundit Bridget Morton said so on RNZ's 9 to noon the same day, and other commentators made the point that NewsHub's pollsters had 95% confidence that the results would be within the statistical margin of error of 3%, and some then drew the conclusion that one poll out of every 20 would be an outlier, so that cry of rogue poll from the opposition and some pundits on this one could well be fair. Indeed, National's deputy leader Jerry Brownlee said as much in a statement published electronically at two minutes past six last Sunday while Tover O'Brien was doing the big reveal live on News Hub at six. So was it a rogue result then or statistically sound? Auckland University statistics professor Thomas Lumley analysed that for the spin-off. He said that 19 out of 20 polls would get within 3% of the true support for a major party, and 1 in 20 would typically be off by just a little more than that, but still pretty close to the polls that were only just on the other side of the line, which the media would report as legitimate. And on Thursday's edition of the RNZ Newsroom podcast co-production The Detail, he explained it like this. For one poll in 20 to do slightly worse than the sort of advertised margin of error. And then occasionally you get polls that are just weird and it's hard to tell uh, what's going on and why they're off by so much. You wouldn't call this poll a rogue poll then? This one I actually would. Well, either this one or the previous one. So the last two polls that have been published have been really different. One had... Uh, national support up near 40, and then this most recent one had it much, much lower. Mm. And so at least one of those is wrong. Opinion polls are getting less informative in New Zealand, Thomas Lumley concluded. 
for this reason. There are fewer polls being published and by fewer pollsters. Response rates are probably also going down, as is happening generally with phone surveys around the world. It's also possible that the whole sampling and bias correction infrastructure is being affected by COVID-related changes in working from home, and that all the polls are less accurate this year. And it's probably not a coincidence that those in media outlets who don't pay for polling these days have been the ones challenging NewsHub's poll. What we're hearing the numbers really look like, um, certainly according to the internal polls, is more like Labour in the early 50s, uh, National in the early 30s, and the gap between them somewhere closer to 15 to 20%. Heather Duplessy-Allen on Newstalk ZB on Monday. And the internal polls she mentioned there were polls paid for by political parties for their own purposes. And sometimes they're leaked to journalists when it suits them. These polls that Heather Duplessy-Allen claimed to be seeing are ones the public and most of the media never see. The point that research revealed to Nationals Caucus would inevitably and rapidly leak to reporters was made by several of them, and on Tuesday evening, RNZ's Checkpoint had this on the air soon after. The opposition National Party has brought in its pollster to brief MPs in a bid to discredit this week's devastating public poll result. And MPs are already leaking the party's supposed internal numbers to media. Those not-so-bad-for-national numbers, strategically leaked by the party leadership, also made News Hub at 6, interpreted this way by political editor to Toba O'Brien. Sasha, several national MPs leaked to us after that caucus meeting this morning and indeed their internal polling is very different from our much more comprehensive public poll. Their numbers have national on 36 or 37, depending on which time period you look at, and the Labour Party on 47%. A couple of the MPs that I spoke to said they're treating those numbers with a high level of scepticism. And scepticism about News Hub's own poll last Sunday increased on Thursday when TVNZ released its latest Colmar Brunton one, which TVNZ One News pointedly introduced this way. Kelda, good evening. From rogue to reality, that's what our latest One News Colmar Brunton poll shows after another recent poll threw up some extreme results. TVNZ's political editor Jessica Much Mackay pointed out that the read research poll unveiled by News Hub last Sunday was carried out over a shorter period of more intense political turmoil with scandal and resignations in the headlines. This wasn't really good news for National, though. Support for the party had fallen by another 6% since the last Colmar Brunton poll taken back in June. And that was reported by The Herald on Thursday as National closing the gap on Labour and even with an online ticker describing from rogue to vogue is the trend, even though it was clearly another Labour could govern alone outcome. On Friday morning, the Herald's front page had the headline, Nats sink again, and the front page comment from Claire Trevette was headlined, Less bad is not good. On the Detail podcast last Thursday, host Sharon Brett Kelly asked long-time political pollster Murray Campbell this question. How much do people, how much do the public care about them? How Are they more important to the politicians than the public, do you think? Interesting question. I think it varies as to who the public is. <laughs> and that wasn't an answer that really helped a lot, but perhaps the party for whom the polls really matter the most isn't any political one or the public, but the media, determined to get their money's worth from the polls they still pay for, while a result that's startling but misleading can be spun into a better yarn than a result which might actually be more accurate.
While most politicians keep an anxious eye on the polls, MPs standing down don't have to bother too much, and there's quite a few of them. And they all have the opportunity to give a farewell valedictory speech in the House before they go. And in hers this week, outgoing Invercargill MP Sarah Dowie took a big swipe at the media's treatment of her, and as she put it, being cast as the Scarlet Woman of New Zealand. We too are human and make mistakes just as journalists do and have. But when a predator is able to manipulate the media for his agenda and the media is directly party to it, it is the media fraternity that needs to audit themselves as to their ethics and their conscious peddling of sexism and patriarchy. On Midweek Media Watch last Wednesday, on Lately with Karen Hay, I took a look at what Sarah Dowie had to say about the media there. That's available on the RNZ website or our podcast feed if you missed it. But one who applauded Sarah Dowie's criticism of the media and its influence on political culture was Claire Curran, the former broadcasting minister, who also had a rough ride in the media when she ended up standing down from that job. She said on Thursday that political reporting had evolved into a level of commentary that was destructive. Now it's her turn to deliver her valedictory next Tuesday in the House, in which she signalled she'll have some more things to say about the media, so more on that in Media Watch next weekend. After the Christchurch Mosque massacre on March the 15th last year, hundreds of articles about it were published in the media in the weeks and months that followed, and at times it was overwhelming for readers. The media banded together to agree on how to cover the trial, which in the end didn't happen because Brendan Tarrant pleaded guilty. But in other respects, they took different approaches to the question of how much detail people would want to know in their news reports. Researchers from Otago University have picked through hundreds of articles published by five major media outlets after the event. What did they find? Hayden Donnell takes a look. Journalists reporting on the March 15 terror attacks were faced with an unusually difficult moral conundrum. Their job, first and foremost, was to communicate as much information about the attacks as clearly as possible. But the terrorist who carried out the killings had obviously bargained on them publicising his ideas. He'd left a manifesto and had live-streamed his murders on social media. Notoriety was part of his plan. In the weeks that followed, news organisations wrestled with how they could avoid being complicit in the killer's agenda. There were few profiles of the man who carried out the shootings. Instead, most outlets wrote about heroic worshippers who tried to stop the attacks. They debunked conspiracy theories or interrogated victim support on when families would receive payments. Some organisations, including the spin-off, followed the lead of Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and refused to name the killer altogether. Others, including RNZ, The New Zealand Herald, TVNZ and Stuff, committed to naming him sparingly. There were a few exceptions. The Herald on Sunday reported in depth on the killer, arguing it was necessary as people were searching for answers on his actions. But most outlets took extraordinary steps to deny him the attention he craved. According to new research from Otago University, that may have had an impact on the country's legislative response. Dr Susan Every-Palmer is one of the researchers who analysed 749 New Zealand media stories relating to the shootings. She says the tenor of the coverage helped pave the way for gun control laws in the months following. Dr Every Palmer joined me to talk about her report. We saw that media focused on uh, victims and society and risks to the public uh, with quite a lot of discussion 
about uh, the need for heightened security in New Zealand based on the fear of either retaliatory or copycat attacks. What we didn't see was a key focus on the perpetrator of the shooting. Now, I remember at the time there was actually a lot of debate around this. There were some that said, you know, he's an important part of the story and we need to talk about him at least a little bit and others that said, look, just absolutely take him out of the story. Your analysis was that essentially that latter argument won out. Yeah, so it's not that he doesn't appear at all. It's just in only a small number of articles is he the key subject. Of those almost 750 In only 53, that was 7%, was he named. It's not like he was censored out of the picture, but it it seems overall that people chose not to focus on him. And and I understand that that was a combination of some editorial direction, uh, feedback from the public and people's own views about it. Um, The other thing maybe just to add is that we looked at print media. It may have been different um, on the radio and, and talkback as well. You would have actually, in, in your analysis, actually looked at a couple of editorials maybe from people that actually talked about why they were covering the attacks the way they were? Yes. Yes. So people recognised that they were being played by the shooter. The shooting itself wasn't this guy's end game. What he wanted was a platform you know, he had deliberately stage-managed his attack in a way to garner maximum attention. And people were just sickened by that. And I think that was part of the, the decision to say, look, we're not going to give this guy what he's wanting. Um, he's looking for notoriety. We're not going to give it to him. The aftermath of this, the media coverage after the attack actually played out a lot differently to how it usually does overseas, right? So can you say how the New Zealand media's approach to this differed from how mass shootings have been covered in other places? Sure. So most of the research comes from the United States and uh, studies have been done which have looked at the cycle of media reporting in which the first two Uh, stages focus on the eyewitness accounts and the first reports. But then in the third and fourth stages of the media reporting, the identification of the shooter and descriptions of their personalities, their backgrounds, talking to people who know them, um, publication of their views, what they've written. So the media scramble to write as much um, as they can find out about the person responsible. And what we found was that Um, In New Zealand, the reporting differed very much from that. And short-circuiting that phase of reporting, actually, you're you're saying that actually changed how the entire aftermath of the attack played out, including in other spheres, not just the media, right? So what are some of the ways that the New Zealand response and the outcomes from the attack differed from how uh, the outcomes have differed overseas? Uh, We feel... Um, based on what happened and on looking at other research, that the media reporting was likely to have shaped public opinion about gun control, really, in New Zealand. A lot of the media reporting was about uh, the fact that the perpetrator had managed to get together this lethal arsenal of weapons legally. Public opinion shortly after the attack was high um, for change in New Zealand gun law. And why do you think the media organisation's decision to generally not name or sparingly name the shooter actually was important to this? Is it just that it kind of allows 
people to focus on more systemic causes rather than uh, individualising the attack. Exactly. So, again, uh, overseas research has found that if the focus is on the bad guy, uh, that's less likely to lead to societal or legislative reform. Whereas if uh, the narrative is on dangerous weapons, for example, then that garners support for legislative reform. Now, you have this hypothesis that this paved the way for gun control. Is that just a hypothesis, or is this something that you've quantified in some way? Is there data, is there research to back that up? This is just a hypothesis. They've done experimental studies in which they have given uh, people scenarios, and as I was describing before, whether the framing was about um, the person or the dangerous weapons, they have been able to quantify quite a different uh, response to um, people's reactions to that. How confident are you of that hypothesis? Uh, we certainly think that that was a factor, but there's other factors um, at play as well that make New Zealand quite different from somewhere like the United States. Now, I know that probably a lot of media would have bristled a little bit at being seen to have been campaigning for a particular legislative outcome. Do you think they were actually consciously going, let's campaign for gun control, or was this more kind of an ancillary uh, effect of them just saying, we are not going to play the shooter's game, we are not going to give him the publicity that he wants? I think ancillary. So I don't think the media were proactively campaigning, but I think that they were reporting on concerns that existed uh, within New Zealand, both by the public and politically, which was this question of how did he how did he get together this arsenal of weapons that could do so much damage from one person in such a short time? So more putting the questions out there: how is this how is this possible? And um, I think that the media was, you know, it, it reflected public opinion, but also to some degree influenced it. But I certainly don't think it was a campaign. Generally looking at the media reporting, it seemed people had tried hard to be responsible about what they were sharing rather than just reactively reporting everything that they that they could or knew. That the, the shooters just so, such obvious desire for publicity backfired that people were disgusted by the idea, right, that, as you say, of, of actually participating in what was obviously his mission. And that helped to short-circuit this usual pattern. I think that's probably right, that it was such an extreme case. It was so obvious that he was um, soliciting attention. He'd, he'd sent his stuff out um, to you guys before he even started the attack, that people were just repelled and sickened by that. So in the aftermath of these attacks, the media is always searching for someone to blame, and sometimes that gets pinned on the individual shooter, but you're saying in this case the media didn't look necessarily at individuals but more systemic causes? Yes, so it's pretty common for the commentary to focus on causal attribution, um, specifically who or what is is to blame. And that's often much wider than the, stu- uh, and the, than the perpetrator themselves. So it might be criminal justice, um, law enforcement intelligence and mental health agencies are typically some of those who blamed alongside politicians. But in this case, uh, maybe somewhat unusually, there was no agency who was held up as a culprit. Uh, so the, the reports about the first responders were generally positive. 
the article was reporting on the police response, um, generally praised them for acting rapidly and they intercepted the shooter quite quickly. Uh, emergency services responded uh, quickly and the health system's capacity for treating the victims was also applauded, um, as was the government response generally reported in a positive light both here and overseas. So again, maybe this also focused the discussion on the wider um, societal and systemic factors rather than being able to say, oh, it was this agency's fault or if only we had have done this, it would have been different. Should the media actually develop something out of this, like a code of conduct or a way of covering these incidents, learning the lesson from Christchurch? I think that would be very useful discussions for people to have. Hopefully in New Zealand this is not something um, that we'll be facing again, uh, but internationally for the media to think about how they report on this and and what the consequences um, might be of responding to someone who is doing something awful in order to garner that media attention. Thank you so much for joining me, Susanna. Thank you. That was Dr Susanna Every-Palmer from the Department of Psychological Medicine at the University of Otago talking to Hayden Donnell there. And you can find links to her report and hear more of what she had to say about it on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website. Last weekend here on Media Watch, we talked to Brendan Hill, the Sydney-based Chief Executive for Australia and New Zealand at Bauer Media, the company headquartered in Germany, which owned most of our biggest and best magazines and closed them all down in April before selling some of them off earlier this month. Last week, the private equity firm Mercury Capital said that it would kickstart production of the ones that it now owns, including Woman's Day, New Zealand Woman's Weekly, The Listener and the Air New Zealand in-flight magazine Cura. Bowers' Brendan Hill told MediaWatch that meant they'd be back on the shelves and in subscribers' mailboxes in early September. And he told us that they'd be the same quality as before, with some of the same staff coming back to join a new 40-strong editorial team. A lot of the people have um, been really delighted to come back, so we're, we're really um, delighted with the team we've put together. It's all ex-employees, so that's really good uh, in that regard. And I think the magazines that you see as they were prior, we'll be exactly the same now in terms of the pagination, the quality of the content, the contributors we have, the art directors, the journalists, etc. will be back as they were. Well, this past week there's been no further announcements about who'll be in which job at the returning titles, but we do know the listener will now be back under the same long-serving editor, Pamela Sterling, who's been at the magazine since the 1970s. And fans of the listener's crossword will be pleased to know that compiler David Tossman will return to the magazine when it goes back into production. In a profile of him, writer Nick Ascroft reckoned that more people enjoy the writings of David Tossman than any other single New Zealand writer. The long-serving editor of North and South magazine, Virginia Larson, will become the new editor of Air New Zealand's magazine, Kiora. But before taking on that role, she's been helping out a couple of journalists from Germany, based in Auckland, who have become the new owners of North and South and are now working hard to get that magazine back in print. Journalists Konstantin Richter and Verena Friedrike Hassel moved here from Germany only recently and they've recently written to subscribers of North and South to let them know what's happening. But if a giant German company decided it couldn't make a go of it after nearly a decade in charge, what chance two German journalists starting almost from scratch? I asked North and South's former editor Virginia Larson and the new owners, Verena Friedrike Hassel 
and Konstantin Richter. This is an RNZ podcast. Last weekend here on Media Watch, we talked to Brendan Hill, the Sydney-based Chief Executive for Australia and New Zealand at Bauer Media, the company headquartered in Germany, which owned most of our biggest and best magazines and closed them all down in April before selling some of them off earlier this month. Last week, the private equity firm Mercury Capital said that it would kickstart production of the ones that it now owns, including Woman's Day, New Zealand Woman's Weekly, The Listener and the Air New Zealand in-flight magazine Cura. Bowers' Brendan Hill told MediaWatch that meant they'd be back on the shelves and in subscribers' mailboxes in early September. And he told us that they'd be the same quality as before, with some of the same staff coming back to join a new 40-strong editorial team. A lot of the people have um, been really delighted to come back, so we're, we're really um, delighted with the team we've put together, and it's all ex-employees, so it's really good uh, in that regard. And I think the magazines that you see as they were prior will be exactly the same now in terms of the pagination, the quality of the content, the contributors we have, the art directors, the journalists, etc. will be back as they were. Well, this past week there's been no further announcements about who'll be in which job at the returning titles, but we do know the listener will now be back under the same long-serving editor, Pamela Sterling, who's been at the magazine since the 1970s. And fans of the listener's crossword will be pleased to know that compiler David Tossman will return to the magazine when it goes back into production. In a profile of him, writer Nick Ascroft reckoned that more people enjoy the writings of David Tossman than any other single New Zealand writer. The long-serving editor of North and South magazine, Virginia Larson, will become the new editor of Air New Zealand's magazine, Kiora. But before taking on that role, she's been helping out a couple of journalists from Germany, based in Auckland, who have become the new owners of North and South and are now working hard to get that magazine back in print. Journalists Konstantin Richter and Verena Friedrike Hassel moved here from Germany only recently and they've recently written to subscribers of North and South to let them know what's happening. But if a giant German company decided it couldn't make a go of it after nearly a decade in charge, what chance two German journalists starting almost from scratch? I asked North and South's former editor Virginia Larson and the new owners, Verena Friedrike Hassel and Konstantin Richter. We do have a long history with uh, New Zealand. We've kept coming back over the years and um, we came here two years ago, spending half a year here, um, back in, in, in March that was meant to be a shorter visit, and then um, our flights got cancelled. Uh, we couldn't go back, and then on a wonderful day, we saw that these great magazines are up, are up for sale, and um, then our lives changed. Mm, and Verena, um, I've read uh, Constantine's story that he wrote about it saying, you know, initially he, he didn't even put out the recycling and didn't pack a coat because he thought he'd be back in Germany before too long. But uh, you were already here, I guess. I was already here with our three daughters, yeah. And lots of people ask us, oh, why did you buy um, the magazine? And I will put it differently. I'd say who would not buy a wonderful magazine like North and South if he or she had the chance. Because if you see something happening that doesn't seem right, it is great if you have the means to do something about it. And I think we're privileged that we could we couldn't put some money into something we believe in. That's great journalism. And there's also another reason um, we've fallen in love with New Zealand when we moved here two years ago. So 
we'd like to give back to this country by making sure that one of its best magazines comes back to life. And Verena, interestingly, in the letter that's gone out to subscribers of the magazine, uh, urging them to hang on in there and telling them it will be back soon, uh, you say put in a bid when you realised this was possible, uh, and then 12 weeks went by, and were you surprised that uh, as the sale process went on, um, were you surprised that they got back to you and said, actually, yes, we'll accept your bid? We were happy, you know. We took it day by day. We didn't know what was going to happen. So, yeah, we were just open for everything. And obviously we were very happy that it worked out in the end. I think, could I add something else? I think it's a bit of an unfortunate coincidence that the people who closed North and South down were Germans just like us. So I do hope that we're not being seen as just another bunch of Germans taking over. I hope we're being seen as who we are, not a big company, just the two of us. And people who've been journalists all, all their lives who care about journalism and to know what good journalism is and who are willing to take a risk because we're keen to save something that we think is worth saving. Yeah, I'm sure they won't hold it against you, uh, the fact that you are German and, yes, of course, Bauer Media, but they made their decision based in Hamburg. They're a a global conglomerate and clearly very different uh, to two journalists from Germany who have decided to do this here. But, I mean, Virginia, you would have been there at the magazine uh, when the surprising, shocking news came through. You pretty glad that uh, it's not in the hands of, you know, another offshore-owned conglomerate that uh, may or may not have its best interests at heart. Oh, look, I'm delighted that Constantin and Verena have taken over. I think it's in fabulous hands, and I mean, I think you've already heard, you know, they're deeply committed to long-form journalism, and that, that was certainly an increasing point of difference with North and South. You know, there wasn't another publication really doing those big, big investigative stories, so I do hope the subscribers and the and the retail buyers come back and support it because it's you know it's going to be in very good hands but having said that virginia i mean you know what it takes to make a magazine like this i mean take a writer like mike white for example um one of north and south's best an award winner you know he's gone to work for stuff doing journalism for them is it going to be hard to put together a team of of similarly capable people mike going to stuff Great loss for for North and South, but I do hope you know there's some other wonderful writers out there. Um, obviously, I was I worked closely with Donna Chisholm and Joanna Wayne. They've got journalism in the blood, and I'm sure they'll be keen to do stories for the new mag. You know, I think it'll be a matter of getting some fresh new voices in the magazine and and a fresh new face at the helm. I think it's fantastic. And Constantine, uh, I mean, how far along the road are you? putting together this team. And and in the end, will the magazine be something pretty similar to the one that the subscribers have backed for many, many years? We are not going to be editors, so we're looking to build a team, and we do have a lot of experience as journalists, but our experience is overseas, and uh, this is the quintessential New Zealand magazine, so we're looking for a a team here of of New Zealanders who will do this magazine. This is such a great magazine. It's got a great tradition. Um, as Virginia said, there's no other place in New Zealand like this. It's got stories running up to 10,000 words. That's a treasure. So I think there's uh, lots to hold on to. Since Bauer closed the magazine, um, a lot of things have changed, and um, we have changed, and maybe you, Colin, have changed and um, in, in these interesting times, and the country has changed, so the journalism has to adjust to that, and, um, and, uh, and we want to, to provide the magazine that reflects current New Zealand.
And there's something else I'd like to add. You know, what I love most about New Zealand is this great sense of togetherness that cannot be found in most other places of the world. Our children here learn about it at school. It's Vanunga Tanga, although they can probably pronounce it better than I can. And the idea that we're in this together, um, whether this is going to be a success, um, doesn't only depend on Constantine and me, although we're surely going to work very hard. It also depends on the readers, whether they embrace the magazine when it's back and whether they're going to help us with the transition process because we're really keen to hear more from the readers. There were 7,700 subscribers, and that's wonderful. But what about all the people who haven't subscribed yet? What, what are they looking for in a magazine? Do some people left, feel left out or not heard? And we also heavily depend on the help of all the fabulous journalists out there because we're only going to be the publishers, as Constantine pointed out. So we hope that many journalists who share our vision will be in touch. But Virginia, I mean, you know what it takes to make uh, this magazine. And uh, I guess, I mean, the ownership of Bauer ended up being a negative because when things turned for the company, they bailed out on it. But, I mean, there must have been benefits of the scale of, of being owned by a big company. Is it going to be hard to recreate something of the same quality without, you know, a lot of those, um, those, those corporate structures around it? I know what you mean. You know, there's the IT guy down the down the hallway and there's things like that. But there's also, I mean, there's some pretty good examples of smaller publishers around New Zealand doing really good magazines with small teams and low overheads and, you know, being pretty nimble. So truly, you could look, you could take that either side. I mean, I think it's also great to see Mercury back bringing some of the other magazines back and, and they, they will be, you know, much smaller business in comparison to the previous one too. Overall, the good side of all of this coming out of lockdown and the closures is that we're seeing some of the the great magazines back and I'm hoping you know that it's both colourful and competitive and it'll be interesting out there and I think New Zealanders are going to be fantastically well served by what's going to be on the on the newsstand very soon. Mm -hmm. I think the media industry is in decline everyone knows that and if you're just after making money you will probably invest elsewhere so obviously we are what you might call idealists but that doesn't mean that we're not sort of realistic and pragmatic and know what we're doing and we've got a business plan, obviously. Is it something that if it makes a loss for a little while, you can sustain that? Or do you need to have more than the, I think, 7,700 subscribers you mentioned there? Do you need to build that base of subscribers and regular customers to make sure you can keep doing this? There's a very um, straightforward answer to that. Uh, We can sustain that. And Constantin, as a publisher, will you be looking for advertisers and even maybe you know sponsored sponsors something like that to be associated with with the magazines for example i think north and south had you know large um, kind of advertorial supplements written on behalf of things like lincoln university and so on would you be looking to con- continue that uh, in your publication we'll be looking at everything um that being said uh, we're journalists from germany and uh, europe and i've also done lots of journalism in the u.s where there has to be a clear barrier between what is um, advertising and sponsored content and uh, native advertising on the one hand and editorial content on the other. I'm also on the board of a Swiss media company, a family company, and uh, we deal with that issue all the time. Uh, you've written to subscribers asking, thanking them for their patience and saying the magazine will reappear as soon as possible, but do you know when, when it will be that they could expect there will be something in their mailboxes? Um, I think that's something um, that we'll be talking to, uh, about to subscribers. We'll do a newsletter and uh, we'll communicate with them. 
the answer now is as soon as possible, of course, and it's not going to be long. Uh, but I, I think that's something that we'll talk to subscribers and readers about in, in very, very soon. And Verena, do you want individual journalists who have ideas and or even work that they've written with nowhere to go or, or, or pictures they want to publish? Do you want these people to be in touch with you directly offering you ideas now or is it just too soon? I know. Yes, of course. We're happy to talk to everyone who's got ideas. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you yourselves, uh, both journalists, it must be tempting to want to write for it yourselves or you really want to be hands-on as, uh, hands-off as publishers and, and, uh, and leave ed- editors to do what they want to do? Um, oh, Colin, to be honest, I've been working as a reporter for so long. I worked for a daily newspaper, which was very sort of um, tiring. I moved on to work for a weekly. I did all kinds of stories. I followed a politician for 100 days asking whether he would change politics or whether politics would change him. And I spent lots of time in a women's prison in order to write a feature story about life there. And I wrote about a um, successful management consultant who turned into a, a language teacher for refugees. So I'm, I'm quite happy to be the publisher now. Same, same for me. I mean, I've uh, not just done a lot of journalism in German and in English, but I um, also wrote three novels. So um, the writing part, the agonizing over words and all that, that's, uh, that's something that uh, I'm happy to put behind and uh, we, we embrace this new role. Virginia has been wonderful. We, we contacted her early on, uh, right after we expressed an interest in this, and um, she, uh, we've been talking to her a lot and she's been, she couldn't have been more helpful. That was Konstantin Richter and Verena Friedrika Hassel, the new owners of North and South magazine. And we also heard there from the former editor of the magazine, Virginia Larson. And you can hear more of that interview on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website or our section of the RNZ app or on our podcast feed. Now, as we heard there, they're striving to get the publication up and running as soon as possible. And they'll be posting updates on their progress at the website northandsouth.co.nz. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, last Wednesday the government confronted an issue that's been the subject of many news stories lately and much comment, changing the law to charge for the quarantine of returning New Zealanders. But it's bad news for international tourism and airlines who have been urging long-haul destinations like New Zealand to dump quarantine restrictions altogether and open up again to international air travel. And as we heard on Media Watch recently, one of the backers of the plan put forward by the International Air Travel Association was News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking. As we speak... People all over Europe are going on holiday, right? It's summer, the borders are now largely open, planes are flying, tickets are being booked and you can go on holiday. IATA... The aeroplane people last week issued a warning for countries like ours that if we keep borders shut, we run the risk of being left behind. And talking to his UK correspondent Rod Little last week, Mike Hosking was still talking about Brits flying to find the sun in Spain and Italy. You you guys have got on with life, rightly or wrongly, and you're on the Costa del Sol and wandering off to the Amalfi Coast for your holidays and all yeah. of that other stuff. But we are locked down with the border closed and the government position is we're not opening our borders until we've got no community spread within the country concerned. Rod Little told Mike Hosking that holidays to Europe from Britain were possible, but... That being said, I think we were terribly late 
to secure the borders, and we may have been too early in loosening them. Uh, Meanwhile, we are still under lockdown here. And one week later, the consequences of the loosened British border were leading ZB's World News last Tuesday. UK officials are making no apologies for quarantining travellers returning from Spain. A recent spike in cases now requires all holidaymakers to isolate for two weeks. We can't make apologies for doing so. We must be able to take swift, decisive action. We risk reinfection into the UK, potentially a second wave here, and then another lockdown. Now, that decision was made after 10 Britons tested positive for coronavirus in July, having gone to Spain in the 14 days before their test. And that was front of mind for Mike Hosking last Tuesday when he called his English mate Rod again. Good morning, mate. Where do you speak to us from? Are you in a pub in Benidorm? Are you in quarantine or have you just stayed at... (laughs) And Rod wasn't in Spain in the sun and he had no sympathy for those who had been. There are many people who, who, in the middle of a pandemic booked to go away to Spain on holiday. I'm trying to find sympathy for these people, but I'm falling short. I don't know if you can help me, Mike. Rod Little went on to tell Mike Hosking the problem here was mixed messages from the powers that be about the risks of crossing borders during a pandemic. The simplest thing would have been for the government to say, look, try not to go abroad on holiday this year. Yeah. I know that will annoy the the, the uh, airlines, it'll annoy some of the tourist industry, but, but that would have been the sensible thing, to avoid all confusion. Indeed. Indeed, though at that point Mike Hosking seemed reluctant to acknowledge that he was one of those praising Brits for keeping calm and carrying on with their usual holiday tourism previously. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but the Media Watch team will be back with Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night on The Lately Show with Karen Hay, and then back again for more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.